I guess I must have been a freshman in high school in, when Darkness came out. You grow, you change so much in the space of a few months or whatever. Your ears open to different things and your brain develops. And I remember hearing, to me, the point of liftoff was hearing the promised land. And there was, at that moment, for whatever reason, I guess I was ready to hear something that was a little more stripped down, that had a little more kind of emotional sort of connection. And I remember hearing that on the radio and just feeling, I'm not sure if it was immediate or I, I got, I just remember suddenly connecting with that and feeling like this is a really cool song. And Darkness came out on the same day that uh, Some Girls by the Rolling Stones came out. And I remember marching down to my used record store in the university district in Seattle, the Cellophane Square, shout out to old Seattleites. And I bought some girls and darkness on the same day and walked home with them under my arm feeling like I'm a really cool, you know, like this is, this is some cool music. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the thousandth episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson. A thousand episodes is a lot of Bruce talk, and there was a lot of discussion about who would be a guest worthy of hitting this silly podcast, hitting a thousand episodes, and I am proud to announce Peter Ames Carlin, writer, author of several books, including Homeward Bound, The Life of Paul Simon, Catch a Wave, which I am holding currently, a the one of the best Brian Wilson biographies at all time, and probably for this audience, a little book called Bruce. So, Peter, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Jesse. It's great to be here. I'm so honored to be here for your landmark episode. Thanks. Yeah, I just I just finished rereading Bruce and I found it especially poignant after Letter to You hearing mm-hmm. all the stories about the Castiles and that early time. It and also after reading Bruce's autobiography, it really added some extra depth. So I, I urge my listeners, if you've read the book years yeah. ago, is worth going back and reviewing because the context of reading it after Bruce shared his story, I found very insightful. So how about you? And I'm going to get to more specific questions, but what did you feel when you read his autobiography and compared to obviously your book? What did you, what did you find insightful him sharing his book compared to what you, all the research and the work you did on yours? Bruce is just such a great storyteller. And there's, there was a lot of, there were a lot of details, a lot of, there were a few stories in there that, that he hadn't shared with me that he really into depth, went into depth on. 
And it's just great to have his voice in your head. At least that's my experience of it. And I remember when I saw him do, he did a, a, a keynote speech at South by Southwest in 2012 that I got to see. And he got up there. I remember it was early. It was like, I can't remember. I think it was noon or whatever, but which was like the break of dawn for him. And um, he came rolling in and, um, and took like a wadded up piece of yellow legal paper out of his pocket and put it on the lectern in front of him, which was just notes or something and started talking. And there were sections of that. And there was particularly talking about high school dances when he at the YMCA or something down the way and freehold and the way and he just had this way of describe getting into all the details of the taboo perfume that you could smell and the girls and and that whole that sort of sexual energy of being a teen a, a, a horny sort of teenager and getting your first sort of female contact and it was so vivid and so beautifully done it seemed like he was just improvising beat poetry that's i remember that's what i thought at the time and i was really delighted when a version of that in that same kind of with that same sort of beautiful rhythm turned up in the book and i think in the parts of the book that are there's so many wonderful segments of that and that's one of them and when he gets into that voice. It just, to me, it's just, it's brilliant. Love that. Yeah. One of the things that I had a guest on, and this was during the pandemic, and we were talking about the series of, with satellite radio, he did from my home to you. And yeah. and Ron Martz is the, was the guest. He's a writer. And he said, we know Bruce is a great storyteller. Why are we shocked that he is able to weave a story of with music and doing the DJ between it he should not mm -hmm. be shocked. He is such a good storyteller in any format he chooses. And I do yeah. think that I love the candidness and the discussion of his mental struggles. And I think that was really important yeah. that he shared and very insightful. So I want to, I always like to start at the beginning, Peter. So you mentioned growing up in Seattle before we hit record, but talk about growing up. What kind of music did your family listen to as you were a youngster and then as going into high school? My, I, yeah, I grew up here in Seattle. And so my musical memories go back to about like the mid sixties or so when I was really little, three years old or so. And my parents, my mom's dad was a classical musician, a pianist, and and he, and so there was a lot of classical music. There was, but really the stuff that I remembered the most was my parents had Beatles records and they got Monkees records, I think, for my older brother and me. And, but I just remember, to me, the real spectacular thing was listening i just remember listening to revolver and rubber soul when i was like three years old and being just completely swept up in that so i was a huge beetle fan from the time i was three that's all i wanted to listen to and so for the longest time that was like all i listened to was but it was cool because i remember when sergeant pepper came out i was four at the time but i remember when the white album came out and just the sense of having the Beatles be your childhood music is is kind of about as good as it gets. And I just remember like this incredible sense of possibility in pop music. And it also wove together with 
the sense of the sort of cultural shifts that seem to be going on and the sense of generational change and that it, it felt at the moment like my parents were bourgeois hippies to a degree. And and so I when we're youngish and at the time and so I just had the sense that everything was changing and that when this new generation got a hold of stuff, nothing, that whole world of greasy haired conservative Republican types that ran Nixon was president by the time I was aware of what was going on. And I just had the sense that whole world was going to get swept aside, that there was going to be this sort of generational takeover and that this old sort of antiquated world was being swept aside. And a lot of where that new cultural energy was coming from was from rock and roll music and rock and roll culture. And I'd see long haired kids on campus at the University of Washington. And I would see these hippie businesses getting started up. And I just thought, yeah, man, this is the future. And it was for months on end until (laughs) those same people cut off their hair and went to business school. And then Reagan was president and everything changed, but changed right back to where it had started up again. And here we are. But uh, there are these brief moments of possibility. And then those get bulldozed over and we're right back to where we started. But so that was it. And so I was through my early adolescence, like really all I wanted, I was interested in was the Beatles. And then I discovered the Beach Boys when I was about 11 or 12. And and I got very into the Brian Wilson thing and that whole saga. And so there you have that first book that I wrote. In the mid 70s, I remember when Born to Run came out and I remember hearing on probably KJR 95 in Seattle when they played like, this guy's supposed to be the next big thing. I remember being on a Boy Scout hike and coming, driving home in some, someone's dad's car and they played Born to Run. And I, I'd read about Bruce and I just, I had the vaguest sense of who he was. I must've been 12 at the time. And I heard it and I thought, this is it. This is what the new thing is. That's Jesus. Okay. It kind of went over my head, but, um, I had older friends and people, and I remember being in people's basements and listening to the FM Cool Radio and Spirit in the Night came on. And I remember when Manfred Mann had that big hit with Blinded by the Light, and uh, someone said, oh, wow, listen to this. This is the original version of it. And having it come on, I'm just being like, what the hell is this? And Manfred Mann obviously had such a wildly reimagined version of that song. But it sounded very of that moment, it sounded spacey. It sounded like it was prog rock, basically, which at the time was like the hippest and seemingly most sophisticated thing going when you're 12 or 13. This sounds really cool. And uh, but then when I was, I guess I must have been a freshman in high school in when Darkness came out. You grow, you change so much in the space of a few months or whatever. Your ears open to different things and your brain develops. And I remember hearing, to me, the point of liftoff was hearing the promised land. And there was, at that moment, for whatever reason, I guess I was ready to hear something that was a little more stripped down, that had a little more kind of emotional sort of connection. And I remember hearing that on the radio and just feeling, I'm not sure if it was immediate or I, I got, I just remember suddenly connecting with that and feeling like this is a really cool song. And Darkness came out on the same day that uh, Some Girls by the Rolling Stones came out. And I was, I, I would I'd listen to a bunch of them. My parents also had early Stones records. 
And then I got into that as an early adolescent. And, and I remember marching down to my used record store in the University District in Seattle, the Cellophane Square. Shout out to old Seattleites. And, um, and I bought Some Girls and Darkness on the same day and walked home with them under my arm feeling like I'm a really cool, this is some cool music I'm going to. And I went home and, and I remember listening, you know, I'm sure it took a few listens for darkness to really resonate. I remember at first not knowing what to make of racing in the streets. It's, it, the, just There seemed to be something a little cheesy about it. The sort of, shit, you know, t- talking about the 7-Eleven parking lot. And I'm like, what kind of a Goomba is this? But eventually it all sank in. And that was where I really began to connect with with Bruce. And then he came to town in December. I think he also played in Seattle in June toward the beginning of the darkness tour. And for whatever reason that went over, I just let that go. I don't know why, because I was seeing shows at that point. But then when he was coming back in December, I had a few more months to really listen to darkness. And by that point, I think I was like all in and I got a ticket. It was like seven and a half bucks. And I went with one of my friends and it was people talk about Springsteen shows like having this life changing thing. And it's a cliche, but and I don't know that it changed my life, but it certainly changed the way I felt about music and live music. And it connected with like I looked around. I was going to a lot of shows in those days, but I think probably then like the concert I had seen most recently was like Ted Nugent or something. And you'd go to concerts and I'd seen some cool shows I saw. Paul McCartney and Wings and 19, like that was like the first huge concert I went to. And I saw a lot of shows in those days. And, but this was the first time I went to a concert where I felt where I was looking around at the people in the audience. And I thought like, these are like grown ups, but these are like cool grown ups. Like yeah. They were like people, college age people and people in their twenties, it seemed, and maybe their early thirties, but it seemed like they were smart. That seemed like nobody wanted to fight. It was like going to a concert. You always had to keep an eye out for people that wanted to kick your ass or kick anybody's ass. And and this was the first time I went to a show where people seemed to be like friendly and open hearted to a dorky fifteen whatever I was a fifteen year old at the time. And uh, and then Bruce came out and the show began and it's just holy shit. It was like, I'd never seen anything that felt so real and so electric. And just, I remember the way that he sprang across the stage in the opening bars of Badlands. And I just was like, I started, I was sitting, it was in this little hockey arena in Seattle sat, that seated maybe 3,000 people. And I was, I it had an upper level, but the upper level, if you sat in it, it was like basically eye level to the people on stage. So it was super close. And I remember sitting there and we were somewhat close to the stage and I was pounding my thighs with my fist to the beat. And later when I got home, it was like I was all bruised. It's like I had the whole show. I was just going like this. And and it was just I just it was just ignited me. And it was really and that was in a lot of ways. It was just set me on a whole new course. And it was a long it wasn't an overnight shift, but it just started this kind of transformation of what I thought was not what was possible in rock and roll music. And I began to grasp not only Bruce's energy and everything, but also his the poetry in him and his. So that was a big night.
Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. couple things. One, I think I'm a few years older than you. I graduated high school in 77. I remember, I've told the story before, but I remember being in a barber shop, seeing either Newsweek or Time, the cover of After Born to Run yeah. came out, and I had never heard of him. And I was mm-hmm. like, who's this guy? How did they say he's, the, have they never heard right. of Elton John? What, who are this? <laughs> and so I did not get it, but I did in 1977, I graduated high school. I had gone through a, AM radio was what I lived on. And I picked up Beach Boys Endless Summer on an eight track. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, it, it changed my musical life. I had never sure. heard anything like that. And so similar to you, I went down that Beach Boy Brian Wilson rabbit hole and bought David Leaf's book and just could finding every Beach Boy album I could find and ended up just he was I often tell people that Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys was my first musical obsession passion and a few years ago right he was performing and Bruce came on stage for an encore and I said if I had been in that audience I forget it that forget having grandkids forget watching my son get married forget this would have been the ultimate in my life to see both brian and bruce on the stage together would have made me very happy similar to you 2002 was my first springsteen show i it was the rising tour i was a casual Mm -hmm. fan before that and i had not studied the rising i had bought it but i had only played it a couple times and what I explained it is I felt like I went into a movie halfway through it and I could tell it was a great movie, but I just didn't mm-hmm. understand everything. And so then I went back and became a massive fan. And then over the years, and especially since 2015, I've been doing this podcast, which has brought the fandom even more. You articulated it, but 
what a, you talked about his poetry, you talked about the rock and roll. Can you come up why his music spoke to you and sent you on that separate journey? Okay, so I, first of all, Bruce is incredibly smart. He's very, he's an incredibly intellectually sophisticated guy. He doesn't really wear that on his sleeve. And particularly early on, we came off like, like a really rough hewn kind of not especially educated guy, but it's obvious. You don't have to, the moment that you really start listening to, to his, if you pay attention to his lyrics and everything, and you realize what he's doing in terms of his use of imagery and subtext and everything, it's like this guy those he knows his way around storytelling and writing and he understands literature and he understands these things and i think a lot of that came to him belatedly i don't obviously a big part of his story was not paying a lot not being very focused on school and when he likes he tried for a long time tried to make it seem like he barely graduated from high school or whatever when his grades were a little but it's i've seen his schoolwork and and his he was writing stories and papers in high school that were not he could have used like a really sharp teacher who really connected with him but his folks weren't especially academic and so he's incredibly smart and what connected with me with him was somehow his ability to be both incredibly intellectually sophisticated in a very sort of not unpretentious and kind of almost rough hewn way. It's like, I always think about him as like sensitive guys in jeans and leather jackets, that his right. ability to be both a man and connected with kind of machismo that did not finish his sensitivity. And his ability to be both intellectual and yet also visceral in a sense that he was, and it was that connection. It was that ability to be both alive in, in being an adult male, but yet also able to connect with your feelings and, and to be able to comprehend things on an emotional and intellectual level while also somehow being connected to the world of physicality and you know music and art and, and also his I was never a car guy which was but he understood what Brian Wilson understood about the symbolic importance of the highway and freedom and this idea and you know and again going back to racing in the streets which to me a journey in that song not only in terms of the character's journey but also the narrator's ability to begin with this very vivid detail of this guy's car in the parking lot of the 7-eleven you can practically smell that kind of cheesy popcorn and slurpy smell that they have in there and yet by the end of the song, he's going, he's making this symbolic journey for all, you know, for all you shut down strangers and hot rod angels rumbling through this promised land. What a beautiful image that is going to the sea to wash these sins from our hands. It's, that's a journey. That is something you can really think about. And to me, that was the liberating thing about Bruce was the ability to say, I can be an English major and I can do a lot of, and I can really care about words and ideas and, 
and expression and feelings and yet also be but also still exist in the physical world and, and heard, understand yeah. the significant sort of the deeper sort of symbolic significance of these things that you engage with in the physical world. Yeah, Peter, I was going to actually mention that, and I'm glad you did, that I remember hearing Racing in the Streak and feeling like, oh, this is a grown-up Beach Boy song. It is like, a, and then later, I believe, on Magic, Girls in the Summer Clothes is absolutely mm -hmm. an homage to Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys. But yeah, I, Racing in the Street felt like a grown-up Beach Boy song. It, yeah. We're talking about hot rods and racing in the street and versus shut down, Little Deuce Coop, all these 409, mm -hmm. just from a different perspective. And I just adored that. I you know, it's interesting ahead. because if you talk to, I've had the opportunity in as a result of my job to talk to both Brian and Bruce. And when I've asked Brian Wilson about like, because it was clear to me, I interrogated this idea as a, as I can't remember if I thought about this as a teenager or whether it was something that probably came to me after I went to college or whatever. But it's like, why do I like these Beach Boy songs so much? Because if there's two things in the world I don't care about as one of them is cars and the other one is surfing. And yet I spend all this time like listening to these songs about these Beach Boy songs about cars and surfing. And and really getting into them and on an emotional level and to some degree, it's about the music. I understand that. But there's also something about the stories, the songs, the lyrics that I'm also connecting with. What the hell is happening? And I realize it's, this is happening on a, on a symbolic level. What he's singing about these pursuits, but on the other hand, what he's really singing about is the emotional experience of them. And all those Beach Boys songs are about being scared. And about being this anxiety, this sort of piercing anxiety that this guy lives with despite the fact of, but he still sees the possibility. He still sees a sort of transcendent possibility of challenging yourself and pushing yourself. I always, it struck me, I called my Brian Wilson book Catch a Wave because I just loved the fact that song Catch a Wave, which is a celebration of surfing and the transcendent possibilities of surfing begins with the begins with the line, don't be afraid to try the greatest sport around. And it's, wait a minute. The first thing you're telling me is that there's something to be afraid of. It's, don't look at that. Don't look at the lion coming at you. It's, wait, there's a lion? It's, it's like the first thing that you hear in that song is, don't be afraid to try the greatest sport around. And they're telling you it's great. You can, it's transcendent. You can transform yourself by catching a wave. But meanwhile, it's like the waves could potentially kill you. And also there are people on the beach who are going to make fun of you. There's like the, the sort of population of dicks sitting around telling you that the sport is good, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the same thing with the cars. It's, what is it about that girl and fun? It's, and why is her daddy always about to take that car away? And it's, what is it about? What does that car symbolize? What does this girl symbolize? What is, when I began to think about that, it's, again, I was an English major. So this is what I was schooled to do is to pick apart texts and all this business. But and it's, this is really rich. But if you talk to Brian about that, which I've done, He's, I have no fucking idea what you're talking about. <laughs> it's like he really, his experience of that, he's not a guy that's analyzing what he reads. He just lives it. He experiences it. Whereas if you talk to Bruce, Bruce knows exactly what he's doing. 
He knows exactly. And to some extent, uh, it was John Landau who who he met when he was whatever, 24 years old, 25. And one part of their intense connection is the fact that John was is an intellectual. John was able to tell him that, or whatever. They could connect on that level, but John is also not terribly pretentious. And so Bruce could, and John was in a lot of ways, I think, and I think Bruce would probably cop to this, maybe, I don't know, kind of a teacher. And I think he encouraged him. It's, there's a reason why you love these movies that you love. And this, there's a reason why you should not just, that you should not just watch the, the movie adaptations of John Steinbeck novels. You might actually enjoy reading John Steinbeck. And when Bruce dug into that, it was like, oh. And then he, I think then he began to kind of connect the dots a little bit. One of the, my favorite stories, and I always take a grain of thought, grain of sand with people telling stories because John Ford's The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, one of my favorite films, right. where you, you print the legend. But in VH1 Storytellers, Bruce is talking about, was I consciously thinking of this when I write it? Maybe, but was I feeling it? All of it. And yeah, yeah. I, I love the idea that Brian, because I always think of Beach Boys is is escape, is not only the feeling of joy, but the escape and finding a way out of it. Now that you bring up the fear, I think there is that mm -hmm. underlying fear. And we're probably overanalyzing because we know Brian's demons that he fought and the his fear of letting the record company down, letting the his brothers down, the band members, his father down. You could see how that undercurrent could help build that at least subconsciously about music he's making oh yeah but that was it because music was the one thing that brian wilson had that that nobody else could touch for the longest time because nobody was even close to being as good at it as he was that's where his the authority from the time he was in high school there are these tapes of him leading sing-alongs in high school and my man is at the piano and he's telling people what to sing. And they're just, they're just a bunch of kids at a high school party in this blue collar suburb down there in Hawthorne. And he's saying, you do this, you do that. And they're singing Sloop John B or folk songs or whatever. And he's the guy. And no he one really challenges yeah. him like that. And that's what he was like. He was always a leader, but that was his medium. That was kind of his... That was his arena where he was the uncontested authority. And for the longest time, that's what sustained him. And, and to this day, I've seen him at the sound checks for his shows with his band. And he walks out there and he's, they'll be goofing around or something. And he's saying, okay, but he's, he's assigning parts. He's telling people what to do. And there's however big his band is, there's a dozen people up there and they're just like, yes, sir. And they're, he's not. He doesn't really sustain it in the way that he did back at his height when he could just whip you through this incredible stuff. That is his world. And he knew a lot of this was just happening in a kind of a, on a level that he was not analyzing or really getting into in that same sort of conscientious way that Bruce was. But, but still, there's a lot of, people always say, this guy's a genius, that guy's a genius whatever but brian wilson is a fucking genius there's just it's just yeah. because so much of it is happening on a level that even he doesn't understand it just falls into his head and that's magical 
but it's also, but there's a sub, there's a riptide. There's an undercurrent that's really dark and really troubling. And that's the tension in his life. So I was able to talk to John Cusack just in line at a at a pop culture convention, and my buddy had done a caricature of him in the Beach Boy striped shirt because mm-hmm. I, I adored Love and Mercy as a fan. I'm curious from your perspective, because you have written a biography, you've also very clearly a fan. I think the movie did a good job of showing both sides of Brian, the early that during the pet sounds and then later with the Landry. What did you think of the movie? I thought it was great. I was really, when I heard they were making that movie, I was like, I don't have high hopes for this because anytime somebody's, first of all, biopics are really hard to do. And, and Beach Boys biopics have always traditionally, I guess there were two different whacks at it on TV. And yeah, it's hard to tell which one is more embarrassing. I think <laughs> I think it's just like this gallery of bad wigs and bad beard, but yes. and it's just uh and I people agree. always want to come up with it's really hard. You have to be a pretty you have to have some grasp of psychology and psychiatry and to grasp what the heck is going on with that guy. It's really it's and nobody really in Hollywood or the TV land nobody had the patience for that, but they did this really smart thing with Love and Mercy, which was doing the microcosmic version of it. But yes, you focus on the making of pet sounds because that's really the moment where it, that was the point of where his music really ascended. But it was also the point where he really began to lose it. My sort of theory or the thing that I came up with when I was writing the book was his music as his mental illness really began to present, which is what it does, which is when it happens when you're in your early 20s. It seemed to me that the energy that he was using his music as a wall to keep it out because music was where he was in utter control. And so by making his music more and more sophisticated and putting more and more energy into that, he was maintaining control. But there's that moment in that movie, which I thought was really cool and really perceptive, where he's beginning to lose it a little bit. And you can tell because he's hearing these voices and they're coming and he does have those auditory hallucinations. And there's a moment where he puts on the headphones in the studio and he hears the voices coming through that. And that is a point where he goes around the bend. And I thought that's exactly right, because it was while he was making the follow-up to Pet Sound's Smile, which is a beautiful piece of work, and then haunted him for almost 40 years before he finally managed to shake that off. And when along the way, it became, but it's extraordinarily innovative and beautiful and, and became this really rich legend, because it was, because the bits of it that escaped before he had to abandon it were beyond, I mean, beyond anything anyone had done and were incredibly beautiful. And and their absence was heartbreaking in a sense. And a lot of his legend was built on not only what he had achieved, but this incredible thing that he had most, that he'd had to abandon. And then the magical thing about Brian was his ability very late in life to go, you know what, let's finish that and, and turning that into what it was. 
But but then again, and then they do that episodic thing where they half the movie or whatever is the Pet Sounds era, and then the other half is late in life when he's figuring his way out of that very abusive relationship with the psychologist. And if people, there's some people were miffed about the, the casting of John Cusack because they felt like physically he doesn't really resemble Brian. And then, but on the other hand, Zach's such a good actor. He really got to, he really found a connection to this essence of late life Brian and his charm and weirdness and, uh, and his sort of this, I mean, his awkwardness and yet also just brilliance that continued into that moment. And I liked that movie a lot. I was very taken with it. I actually, I'd had very low hopes. And then I was interviewing uh, the record producer, Titleman, and, uh, and Russ had known and worked with Brian in the mid 60s and was obviously a big part of that California, LA music scene. And he was at Warner Brothers and worked real closely with Lenny Warrenker and a bunch of stuff and everything. And Russ is a really cool guy and really sweet. And I was talking to him and we were just talking music and stuff. And and I brought up the Brian Wilson thing and I and he said, oh, I saw that movie. And I was like, because yeah, just mm-hmm. everything I'd heard about it was like, was not promising. And I said, how is it? And he goes, it's actually terrific. And I was like, are you kidding? And he's like, and that was the point at which I realized, like, Jesus, if Russ likes that, yeah, really, he's this dude is on the ball, man. And yeah. he would know. He knows this guy. And lo and behold, he was right. Yeah. Like I said, I spent a few minutes talking to John and he had said the Pet Sound box set was his was all the research he needed. It was in the music. And then he looked at me and he said, Brian was happy. And I that was enough for me. He said that was all I needed. And so I think that's amazing. I do want to talk just for a few minutes about you as a writer. You mentioned majoring in English. Did you always know you wanted to write? Here's the thing. I always, for whatever reason, I always just had a facility for writing. It came easily to me. I don't know why it just did. And I, and I, and so I all really liked the fact that, because <laughs> I and I just I could express myself that way and and then when I was in high school I remember I wrote for the high school newspaper and when I was just always a smart ass joker guy and so it was like that was how I could air that out and then in college I think I um I took some creative writing classes and was a really terrible fiction writer and but when I left college i graduated in 85 and i just remember that summer i was hanging or i hadn't really given a lot of thought to what i was going to do afterwards but then i was like so i gave my i took that summer off like i didn't have a job or anything and i traveled around and then i settled back in portland in my old college house with some of my old college buddies and because that's where my friends were and that's where the parties seemed to be and i was lying around by this pool on campus all summer and I remember I thought to myself when Labor Day comes around I'm gonna I'm gonna figure out what I'm gonna do with my like I better start looking for a job around then and I thought by the time once I thought about it and I was reading books and lying there and I just remember thinking like maybe journalism or maybe advertising and there were I remember I kind of had some informational interviews or something with people in advertising or I went to some meeting or whatever of young advertising people 
And I thought, I don't know about these guys. This sort of, I guess I could see this happening, but it's, and then I just, a friend of a friend had been a copy aide at the Oregonian newspaper and was leaving that job. And our mutual friend called me up and said, this guy's leaving his job on Monday. If you call them at 10 a.m. and apply and ask if you can apply, they're going to need someone. And I was like, okay. So I got this job like on the newsroom floor running mail around and being like the errand boy or whatever. And I started hanging out there and I realized I like these people. Like these people are really smart and cool. And I just got swept up in the kind of shit writing for a daily newspaper is exciting. You get this assignment in the morning you go and you work on it and you pound out the story and get it in. And when the editors are really funny and smart and they get this thing in the paper and sometimes it's in the paper by that afternoon or the next morning or whatever. And then I was like, shit, this is cool. And I began to, you could, I could, you could freelance for the paper as a copy aide in those days. And I just began freelance. And I began to be able to write about music a little bit and do book reviews and everything. And, and then there were these really sweet, generous editors who taught me basically that was like grad school for me. I did that for two years and managed to get these people to help me learn how to be a professional writer. And, and then I just once, and from that point, it all came together. And so I published my first piece in the paper, I think in November of 85 or December or something. And it just felt like magic to me. And I thought, man, this is it. This is what I want to do. And then I began, I was, I had already been reading like Tom Wolf and, um, new journalists and everything. And, and I just had this sense of, wow, you can really, there are all these different creative ways of telling stories and being a journalist. And I just thought, this is it for me. And, uh, and I just thought, this is what I want to do. And I just put all my energy into that. And I didn't have a girlfriend at the time. I didn't have anything to do or anywhere to go. So I would, I would just spend my evenings with my electric typewriter in my little room in my crappy apartment, you know, pounding away and trying to write short stories or trying to write I'd get an assignment from the paper and I'd have to rewrite it like five or six times to make it anything close to publishable. And that's what I did. And then gradually, and then I just, so by the time I was probably 23, 22, it's that was, you know, it was pretty focused and, and, and I, you know, and so that's, so now it's been a long time and here I am. One the saying people say is don't meet your heroes that I mixed emotions. You've written books for about icons and music. Did you walk away being less impressed, more impressed about the same with the amount of research you had to do for some of these iconic people that you've talked about, that you've written about? It's always daunting to to meet people that you admire, whose work you admire. But I think for me, I think I've always tried to to see them. The things, the first real serious like idol type person that I met who I had the chance to meet and talk to was Brian Wilson, which is a really weird place to begin because Brian is challenging as a person because he's got his, he's a lot more, he's pretty stable. He's been real stable for 20 odd years now. I've heard uh, he is an odd interview. He's a very odd. 
Yeah, no, I was just gonna say yeah. that's my magic chip. Like, I absolutely would adore Bruce to be on the podcast. Obviously, sure. any member of the East Street Band. I don't know if I would want to play that chip to talk to Brian. I would love to meet him in yeah. person, but I don't know how good of a podcast it would be. It, a lot of it has to do, and this is a thing that a lot of writers never really connect with. Is a lot of it has to do with your energy and how and. I think if you can, he understands a lot about people without you telling him anything. Oh, right. And I think if you come to him open-hearted and with with warmth, and you're not there to interrogate him, but you're there to have a conversation in a sense, and you catch him at the right time, a lot of it has to do with what's going on in his life and in his mind, which is a little it's a little bit of a hall of mirrors and that's just the challenge of being brian wilson but it's i've had great talks with the guy and i've had horrific attempts at interviews with him and i've had moments where he is just spectacular and just off the deep end in the best possible way i've i remember sitting around and talking to him and one and he goes uh uh I, i can't remember i just remember him suddenly going do you think UFOs are real? <laughs> it was like, <laughs> and that was like part of a really cool conversation we had, you know? I mean, there have been times, there was one, when I was working on my book, I went, uh, Brian was at South by Southwest. It was when Smile was about to come out and he was going to give a talk with a, uh, they were giving, doing a session with Van Dyke Parks to talk about Smile. And it was appearing in public and on a panel in front of all these people, which is not his favorite thing to do. And he was really anxious. And, but for some reason there, we had been scheduled to talk that morning and I went to his hotel room and he was so not into it and he was monosyllabic and we went five minutes and he was like, are we done? Are you good? Will you just please leave? And I was really mad. I was mad because I, I went all the way to Austin and I was like, God damn it. Like, why do you even do this? It's like, why are we even, it's like, I actually unloaded on the guy a little bit. And he was a little taken aback. And he was like, when are you going to be in L.A. again? And he's like, why don't we just talk there? And I was like, OK, fine. And and so then I went to like a month later or whatever, because I was trying to finish my book at the time. And I called David Leaf and I told David, man, I just had this terrible talk with Brian. And it was like a nightmare. And it's like he said that if I come to L.A., we can do it again. And I really need to have another talk with him and blah, 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 blah. And, and it was like, but this one's got to work out or I'm going to be really upset. And David is, okay, I'll help you. David's a great guy. David set up his lunch for the three of us. And uh, so I went to this restaurant and uh, and I was there on time, And but Brian was already there. And we were sitting outside and he calls me over and he just looked at me and he smiled and he said, don't take out your tape recorder. Let's just talk. And I was like, okay. And he looks at me and the first thing he said is, do you smoke pot? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, sort of. And he goes, you shouldn't. It'll make you paranoid. And from there, it was like this incredible thing. And then like soon he was like singing and pounding on the table. And we had this wonderful thing. And I wasn't taking notes at the time, but I was depositing it all in my on my yeah. little hard drive. And the yeah. moment that we went our separate ways after lunch, I just pulled out my thing and filled in 25 pages of note paper. And, but it was like, I, at the end of that process, I thought to myself, 
the way that I describe Brian is, and this has become my sort of thumbnail version of how what's Brian Wilson, which is that he's weirder than you can imagine, but not as crazy as you might think. Because there's a lot of him, he's extremely, he's really smart, and he's really passive aggressive and incredibly sensitive. And so it's he uses his reputation for being crazy as a way to get people out of the room when he doesn't want them to be there. And I've had him do it to me, but I've had times where he's been really welcoming and really wanting to talk about stuff. But in terms of, but then when it's like, when you meet Bruce, which is the other coolest guy that I know, it's like, he's awesome. He knows exactly how to be, how to be Bruce Springsteen for you. And it's like, he just, he knows how to set you at ease. He knows what people are looking for. And when they talk to him, he's awesome with fans generally. And obviously, if you're a writer and you're sitting down with him, that was, I've had, I had the opportunity to really have long talks with Brian, with Bruce about his life and his music and all this stuff, like really deep emotional stuff. And a lot of those interviews, like interviewing the guy for however long we would go on for hours, it was exhausting because it was like playing three-dimensional chess because the guy... I'd ask him questions and I could see the wheels turning in his head and he's simultaneously answering my question, anticipating, thinking about what I'm really getting at and figuring out ways to maneuver me around so that he doesn't have to tell me anything he doesn't really want to tell me. That's awesome. um, Yeah. And it's just, and it's great and it's really fun on a level, but it's also really, it's a lot to deal as a writer, as a reporter or whatever. It's like, he's really putting you through your paces. Yeah, And I loved it. And he's a real sweetie and in a lot of ways, but he's also, there's nobody more, there's like the two of the most willful people I've ever met in my life. One is Brian Wilson and one is Bruce Springsteen. And it's just, I guess that's how you get to be those guys. How do you get to be Bruce Springsteen? It takes a lot. Have you got to see the new tour? Have you gotten to see him? Yeah, I did. The new tour? What's your thoughts? Look, it's a great show. He's still Bruce Springsteen, right? And Bruce Springsteen knows if there's one thing Bruce understands, it's what makes a great performance on so many levels and his that thing that he did that that connected with people that connects with people is this sort of cold fusion that he's pulled off of bob dylan and elvis Presley. he's got elvis's sort of rock and roll magic that visceral thing that understanding of the emotional tendency of, of performance but on the other hand, he also is super engaged intellectually and he understands storytelling and he understands subtext and all this stuff and what he symbolizes to people and what people need him to be and how, he, you know, what a show should be and what the emotional journey is. Like he's got that wire. He really understands the internal wiring and how to make a show something more than just a rock concert you know how to tell a story and his storytelling in this he's always been super good so this show is about mortality this is the i absolutely have you seen the show yeah i've seen it three times i saw him in dallas 
in Houston where he did If I Was the Priest for the first time. Then I saw him oh, wow. in Austin. And when there is a lot of beauty to social media, there is also a lot of ugliness. And so there is the percent of people like, oh, I can't believe he's not changing the set list. Why is he picking these songs? And I mm-hmm. think this show is as scripted as Broadway in its own way. Yeah. I think he has a mm-hmm. story he wants to tell. And mm-hmm. the baseball manager, depending on who's out of the lineup because of these COVIDs, he's adjusted it. But I think he has a story he is trying to tell. And I do think it is about mortality, beginning endings. I think Last Man Standing, The Backstreets is a powerful thing. So I agree with you. And so continue, please. Yeah, so, you know, here's, to me, in some ways, one of the cool things that, about that show when I saw it in the other night and uh, is I, I'm my partner, my girlfriend, she's just a few years younger than me, like four years younger than me. And, but she grew up, we didn't know each other, but we both, when we were kids, but we both grew up in Seattle and she, but she was just enough, young, younger enough to not. To, to sort of her point of entry into music was more sort of punk and new wave and then grunge. That was her world. That was her community. And she's very deeply into music, but into it on this whole other level. So Springsteen, she didn't have a beef about Bruce or anything. She And she knew it wasn't like jingoistic, like flag waving. Like she understood there was, but it just didn't wasn't a thing for her. She just didn't get it and didn't. It's like the same way that I feel about David Bowie. It's, yeah, Bowie's great, just not for me. And there's maybe half a dozen of his songs that I really love and a bunch of songs of his that I like. And I res- I can see what he was doing. And that's spectacular. And he's an amazing artist, but he's just wasn't engineered for me. That was kind of how she was with Springsteen. And we've been together for five, six years or whatever. And uh, she knew I had this big Bruce Springsteen thing, but she never was. <laughs> she never read my book. Uh, she read the other ones. They're like, I'm interested in these guys. I just Bruce is whatever. But I would put on, she'd get into my car and E Street Radio would be on or something. And she would blow her nose and go, why is this happening to me? Like she was really not into it. And and, and she was kind of yanking my chain a little bit sure. and everything. But it was just kind of like, and I was like, oh, that's fine. If there's stuff you like that I don't like either of us, that's how it is. We're two different people. But but then I was like, you want to see Bruce when he comes to town? She's like, hell yes, I want to see Bruce Springsteen when he comes to town. So I was like, cool. And then she began to read a little bit of the book and listen to a little bit of the music and everything. And And then we saw the show and we're like four songs in. And she grabs my arm and she yells in my ear. She goes, I'm fucking loving this. And and I was like, ah, here we go. And she completely got it. Since then, she's been doing this thing where she's like discovering the album. But now, she, and she decided to go at them chronologically. So now her she's fixated on greetings. That's awesome. Is, she's, yeah, so I'm being able to re-experience that that discovery as she's getting into it and she's a writer and she writes about music and she's she writes about all kinds of art and literature and stuff and so she's super duper smart about that kind of stuff but it's been really fascinating and fun to watch her like this morning we were sitting around drinking coffee and i was like and i was listening i had been digging out that main point show from early 75 and that's where he covers i want you the dylan tune and I was like, you're going to like this. And I put it on and she was like, 
oh, wow. It's, she just so was like, man, this is incredible. And it was really cool to watch her wheels turn and figure out like, oh, like she recognized the sound immediately, the, the keyboards and the, she gets that early sound at this point and she, she can anticipate that, uh, you know, the E Street kind of thing. And, but then when he's doing it, it's, so it's been really interesting to, and to have her again, having that sort of transformative thing happen at a concert, which is of course where it should happen, but where it's going to happen. And so that's been fun to watch. And it's just late stage and more than 40, 45 years after it happened to me to have it happen to to my partner it was really cool to watch that was great i it's it's a different kind of show than they have been over the last 20 years or so no signs no requests none of that business he seems he's understanding he's developed a new slightly different style of performance because he's in his mid-70s and so he can't sure. be as physical as he was it's cool the it one is- regret the one the only thing that's troubling to me, and I think it is for a lot of people, is just the ticket prices, yeah. which is on the one hand, it's on the one hand, it's okay. Concerts are expensive. The economics of concerts have, and the music industry have changed because nobody's selling records anymore. And I don't know what he gets from streaming or whatever, but it's, I was looking around on my, at any rate, I realized I never bought a letter to you. It's like that because I, cause I don't buy anything anymore. I stream it. And this business, I tell you, here's the thing. It's like, God love those guys and Bruce. And obviously I really admire the guy. I think he's a great guy. I think he made a big mistake with, with that dynamic pricing thing. I think that's evil. I think that's wicked. And I think he's built up this idea of concerts as a utopian community. And it, it always felt that way to me. You go to these shows and there was something about Springsteen shows, especially if you're up in the pit or wherever, where people were people in the pit if there's some reason if there's a smaller person or somebody who for whatever reason people take care of each other up there that was my experience of it and people if someone would say hey so this person has never seen bruce or is having something or other happen let's get them up let's get her up to the front of the stage and people like the seas part and somebody gets to go be right on the rail there because people are kind that was a thing i've seen happen and i don't maybe that's still happening but I just feel like you take this utopian community that you've created, that you've celebrated and talked about, and now you're turning it into a gated community where essentially, you know, to get into there, you got to pony up a few thousand bucks. And not only that, you got to scratch and claw. The idea of dynamic pricing is it's basically like an auction. Yeah. You're scratching and clawing against your fellow fans to get access to the front of the stage. And you're not letting people in. You're shoving, you're elbowing them aside. And you don't mean to do that. You're just trying to have the experience that you want. But the idea that it's not a thing where if you show up at the right time and you're dedicated enough to wait, then you're, it, that was the thing I liked about how, the bracelet system and how people got into the pit. If you had that general admission thing, you got onto the floor, but you weren't going to get up to the front unless you got down there and waited in line. And there was a certain element of dedication and a certain element of luck. And it was a lottery type system. And it was it was fair. That felt right to me. And I feel like, listen, I we saw Paul McCartney last spring and those tickets were like 350 bucks or whatever, and yeah. which was a lot of money for a night. But on the other hand, he's a beetle. 
Yeah. <laughs> this is a rare experience and he's still really good. And that sort of seemed, yeah, I'm, I guess we'll pony up for that. And, yeah. and we did, and it was great. And I was happy to do that for Bruce, but I can't spend thousands of dollars for one night of entertainment. I was looking at the ticket prices and it's, man, if you wanted to go to the show, if you wanted to take your family, if you wanted to take your kids to see Bruce Springsteen, yeah. like that was going to cost essentially and have decent th- seats. That was going to cost what it would cost to take your family to Hawaii for a week Yes, or Mexico. And it was like, that. there's no yeah. fucking way that, that, that like I can justify that. Yeah, and I really, and I've kept you way too long, and I appreciate that, so we won't spend too much on this, because I, I want to get to the Mary question, but yeah, I, my, my only, I agree with everything you said, my only sadness is that there is a small percentage of people who have totally given up on Bruce, period, because of this yeah. situation. I'm not going to go to the shows. I'm not going to listen to his music. And I just, I, I keep, I kept joking. Don't get a divorce. Just put him on the couch for a while. Make him sleep on the sofa for a little while for your unhappy. Because ultimately yeah. to me, to quote Land of Hope and Dream, he's been a good companion on this part of the mm-hmm. ride. His music and Brian's music specifically have been such a va- vital part of my life that I'm going to give a little bit of grace. I do sure. agree that Ticketmaster is horrible. One of the things I hate the most is on Uber, when it's surge pricing, it is honest. It says, you are currently paying seven times the going rate for this ride. Do you want to continue? Mm-hmm. And Ticketmaster, yeah, yeah, Ticketmaster just says, hey, they're now, they're $600. And I don't even know what the base price is. That's so, the thing, but I heard that there were people, I don't know, this actually happened. Yeah. I've heard people say that, like, you um, you basically say, okay, this is a $400 seat. And you're like, great. And you go, give me two of those. And then it's great. Here, you're going to get two $400 seats. But then when you check out, it's like, whoops, no, actually, yeah. now it's $4,000. I've heard like, that story, too. Yeah. I, the only experience I had with that was trying to buy an airline ticket on Orbitz. And the fare to wherever I was trying to go was 300 bucks. And I was like, okay, I'll pony. Oh, that sounds about right. And then when I would hit buy this, it goes, actually, it's $720. And I was like, what? And then I thought, I'm going to bail out of this. I'm going to go back and try again. And I like maybe something went weird that I wasn't paying attention. So I went back to step one and they were like, 300 bucks. And I'm like, cool hit it again and it goes oops those there's no longer that fair now it's 700 and i was like this isn't okay so then i bailed out of orbits and i went right to the airline which was alaska or whatever and they're like yeah 300 bucks and that's still what it was so they're doing some dynamic they're playing games with you on that between the point where they off it's a bait it's essentially it's the very illustration of what a bait and switch is it really is you like this and then it's, yes, I want that. They go, we don't have that anymore. How about this other thing? And it's just, no. Yeah. And so that's, if that's, I don't know that Ticketmaster was doing that, but whatever it is that they're doing, it's, it's just, I, I don't think it's cool. Yes, I agree. Thank you. This is so nice. You have been very kind on your time. I'm going to give you a chance to plug stuff in a minute, but I end every podcast with the Mary question. And what the Mary question is, Jay Armstrong 
who was an honors English teacher in the Philadelphia area that's recently retired. His mm-hmm. seniors would spend two days breaking apart Thunder Road. They would look at the lyrics, mm-hmm. talk about the themes. They would treat it as a poem, comparing it to Robert Frost and other poets. And at the end of the two days, he asks his class, does Mary get in the car? Mm-hmm. In the spirit of overthinking lyrics, does Mary get in the car at the end of Thunder Road, Peter Carlin? Um, but it does, but it, I don't think it's a, I don't think the ride goes like the way that Bruce expects it to go. I mean, it's not a long ride. I think they, I think they, that maybe they get to that place where they really want to go and then they walk in the sun and then they realize that their life's a lot more complicated or maybe they get there and it's only partly, and it's only, and it's partly cloudy and it starts to rain. To me, that's that story. So it's, yeah, of course. Maybe there's just not as much redemption beneath the dirty hood as anybody would like, but it takes a lot of work. Yeah. Someone said, yes, she gets in the car, but then when he stops for cigarette, she gets into another car and, oh, maybe I'll hang out with this guy instead or go with these. Absolutely. If someone, first off, talk about what anything you've got coming up that you want to promote. My most recent book is about Warner Brothers Records. It's called Sonic Boom, and it's it's out and about. I came out a couple of years ago, and right now I'm working, trying to finish a book about REM, which will come out in oh, about a nice. year, probably. Okay, nice. So that's, that's my new thing. And if someone wants to reach you, what's the best way? I have a website that's just peteramescarlin.com and you can, there's, I don't tend it very much, so it's a little dusty, but there's stuff there and I think there's contact information and I'm on Twitter and Facebook and all that stuff. So I'm out in the swimming in the sea with everybody else. Thank you very much. Listeners, go check out the website. Go, if you have not read Peter's book, Bruce, which I cannot imagine you haven't, go revisit again. Even if you've read it, I did this week and I really enjoyed the, and I enjoyed it more than I did the first time. And I think it was a great book. I also, Sentimental Reasons, his book on Brian Wilson is amazing. I've been lucky enough to have David Leaf on the show and he talked about his experiences writing about Brian. And I think your book is a perfect companion to David's. And I hope you know how big of a compliment that is. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you, sir, so much. Good luck. And uh, thank you much. Listeners, thanks for being here for a thousand episodes. It means the world to me. We're going to keep doing more, but for now, be safe, be kind, and we'll talk to you soon. Goodbye. There we go. Another episode. I'm about to go through a couple of things where you can reach me and give me feedback. So if you want to skip this, I understand. But I do hope you check it out every once in a while. I'm available on Twitter at Jesse Jackson DFW. The show is available at SetLustingBruce. You can send me an email, setlustingbruce at gmail.com. You can send me a voicemail at 469-249-2442. I am currently doing a few other podcasts, perfectly good podcast, John Hyatt from A to Z where Sylvan Groth and I discuss every John Hyatt song in alphabetical order. My Babylon 5 podcast is Last Best Hope for Conversation, where Lou, Karen, and I discuss every episode of Babylon 5 in chronological order. I still am doing Next Stop Everywhere, the Doctor Who podcast, with my brother in time, Charles Skaggs. 
And then finally, How Many Podcasts, the only podcast on the internet that counts, where my buddies and I discuss pop culture. You can go to our Patreon page and support the podcast for as little as a dollar a month. You can go to our Facebook page, like, and please, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and leave a five-star rating and review for all of the podcasts that I'm doing. It's okay if you don't listen to them, but if you subscribe and rate, it really will make my day better. Thank you, and I will talk to you soon. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only, said Listing Bruce. The theme for Set Lessing Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.